How Should Christians Think About God and Nations? Coming up on this edition of Useful to God. That is the useful conversation between Dr. James Spencer and me, Richard Beatty. James, we have been doing this show since Thanksgiving, and here it is, the 4th of July, Independence Day. For me, it's meaningful since that was the day I literally caught a plane from JFK uh, in New York to Stapleton Airport. I kissed my parents goodbye, watched fireworks across America from that DC-10. That was 1978. And as people like to say, with freedom comes responsibility. And as I learned, with freedom comes accountability. People all around the country last week celebrated the birthday of this nation with food, drinks, and fireworks where, where there is not a fire ban. There are messages of Patriot's dreams that we are or are not a Christian nation. And in the current state of affairs, election districts and voters' rights have taken a political slant on who we are, what are our rights, and our freedoms. And if we listen deeply to thoughtful and useful conversations, we may be able to draw a conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I've never been particularly interested in politics. It's just never been something that I gravitated toward even before I was Christian. Um, you know, I was young. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was, I came, I became a Christian in 1997 and uh, was born in 1977. So just a year before you were on that flight, Richard. Um, and so I really didn't have much of a care about anything back then. Um, so my interest in politics really developed after the 2016 election. And I began to start taking an interest in Christian perspectives on American politics and particularly how the Bible was used in various political speeches and campaigns. And at times, you know, the Bible and biblical concepts like the fear of the Lord or, um, even, you know, second Chronicles seven, um, and, and Psalm 33, 12, uh, we're being used to legitimize a particular political perspective. And that really is what drew my attention to politics. Well, the media's role has kind of spoke, uh, has stoked the political fire and has done more harm than good. And while it's easy to blame the media as a media professional, I have to look in the mirror because we are the media. So where do we draw the lines? Yeah, I mean, I think as I became aware of the more popular uses of scripture in political realm and, and really started seeing how the media and also politicians had been using uh, scripture and even just biblical concepts more generally uh, in their, you know, political speeches and, you know, their their development of a political following. Uh, I began to feel sort of like Bonhoeffer. Um, and in Bonhoeffer said this, uh, he has this great quote from an international youth conference in Galand. And he says this quote, has it not again and again become terribly clear in all that we have said here to each other that we are no longer obedient to the Bible. We prefer our own ideas to those of the Bible. We no longer read the Bible seriously, no longer read it against us, but only as for us. And I think that last point, uh, you know, reading the Bible against us versus for us really speaks to some of what's happening in uh, American politics and the way that even Christians have fed into the, the American politics. We start to read the Bible for us rather than against us. And what that really means is that, um, you know, reading the Bible for us is 
we find those passages and those ideas and those principles that really support the perspective that we prefer. And we, we may ignore or sort of uh, marginalize those passages that would push us to something beyond what we prefer or opposite of what we prefer. And those are the against us sort of passages. And so really what we're doing is we're listening to messages that, um, as, as Paul writes to Timothy, um, scratch our itching ears. And, and those are the ideas that we end up preferring. Um, we end up preferring our own ideals as opposed to those of the Bible. It's like everybody has more Bibles at home than they do cars in the garage. But how many people read and study what it says? It may be America's book, but is it America's philosophy? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people really there's there's an issue in in theological studies called syncretism. It's the combination of two things that probably shouldn't be combined. You actually saw a lot of it in the Old Testament when Israel, for instance, would uh, put up an Asherah pole or um, set up an altar to Baal. And they thought that somehow they could combine these other gods with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. And they were always wrong. Um, God is the only God. It was God alone. Uh, Israel was intended to be an, an, a, a nation that was focused so solely on the Lord that all of these other polytheistic notions of other gods just sort of faded away. And I think that we suffer from syncretism in the United States in so much as we sometimes prefer the idea that the United States is uniquely blessed by God. And that rhetoric is often offered in sermons and political speeches. And, and you know, we, we are right to assume that God has blessed America. But it's probably not quite as correct to assume that God has blessed America and not blessed other nations along the way. And so I think that the Bible and by extension, God is sort of drawn into a national narrative in ways that scratch our itching ears. So we're right to be concerned about things like the moral state of our nation, but we're wrong to assume that we that that moral state would somehow secure God's blessing. Well, we come up with catchphrases and we cheapen the words like patriots and liken uh, those who are destructive in their words and actions, and we wage war on the culture instead of speaking truth in kindness and love. If we're to change our strategy, how and and how we look at, at one another. How then should we act? You know, I, I think we have to admit that God has blessed America as he's blessed other nations. You know, in scripture, we see times of prosperity for many nations, including, but not necessarily limited to Babylon that drew Israel into exile, Persia that ultimately allowed Israel to move from Babylonian exile back into the promised land, and then Rome that was in power when Jesus was crucified. These nations at certain points in time could have claimed a blessed status, uh, even though those nations were not honoring the Lord. And at the same time, I think we should be concerned when individuals, Christian or otherwise, presume to know why God has blessed those nations. There is a, a real difference between admitting that God has blessed nations and understanding why God has blessed nations. 
And so when we claim God has, you know, let's say blessed America because previous generations were guided by the scriptures or because various Christian principles and teachings were, um, you know, very strongly in play early on in our nation, I think we're engaging in some speculation. We're making a leap. And we also set forth a set of priorities, either implicitly or explicitly, that are in some way inseparable from what it means to be Christian. So those priorities increasingly align less with the proclamation of the gospel and more with repairing the moral and social fabric of the nation. We want to get back to a blessed status. And in 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 thinking that we know how to get back to that blessed status, we we start to sort of think that the moral and social fabric is more important than the proclamation of the gospel, or at the very least, more central to the proclamation of the gospel than maybe it actually is. So is it the classic misconception that we make God and our Christian lifestyle the way we want it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very real sense in which um, all of us, whether individually or collectively, we want God to conform to our agenda. Right. I don't want I don't want to be I don't want to have my life determined by God just as a baseline statement. (laughs) Right. This is what God and I think my, you know, sanctified will at this point always fights against. I always want to go my own way. Always. I don't want God directing me in every moment of my life. There are some points where I want to sit back and say, God, what you're telling me to do makes zero sense. And I just want to go my own way. Thank you. There's nothing wrong with going my way. I'm not looking at something immoral or unethical. I would just like to go in a different direction than it seems like you're prompting me. And so I think that we're always in danger of, you know, making God and our Christian lifestyle into something that we want as opposed to something that God wants. And so what I'd like to be clear about is, you know, I don't want to minimize the diverse and peaceful activities of God's people in the social and political realms. I actually think we should be active in the world, but those activities are not precluded by the scriptures. And my concern is that the way that we understand the aim of and and, and sort of go about participating in those activities becomes skewed, if they haven't already, by by speaking and thinking about them in ways that suggest God has some obligation to our nation when instead we have an obligation to him. So in other words, what I'm saying is um, this isn't a call for Christian inactivity. Christians should still be engaging in the, the aspects of pure and undefiled religion in the eyes of God the Father. We still need to be visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. We still need to be undefiled by the world. We still need to be pushing out and helping the needy. We need to be doing all of those things. And I think that in America, political action makes perfect sense within the scope of things that uh, Christians could engage in. But what I what I want to caution us against is making sure that we don't feel that in engaging in those things that somehow God is going to be obligated then to continue blessing our nation. Because at the end of the day, God has a broader plan than we may realize. And we have to understand that we're not engaging in these activities because we want God to be obliged to us. We're engaging in those activities because we are obliged to follow him. 
Yeah, it kind of sounds like we're becoming more like American Pharisees. We're the teachers of religious law, and in the process, we shun and call names rather than mentor and disciple. And in the process, we will lose the next generation unless we turn from our methods. We cannot give the good news when we are being the bad news. How will people hear that message? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there has to be a sense in which we recognize that presuming we know why God blesses America also suggests that we understand what needs to be done to restore or maintain that blessing. And I, I think those two are, that's the real problem here. That's the misapprehension that we often have. Clearly, we understand what God wants. I mean, God's word really lays that out for us right? God tells us what he wants us to do. We understand what the moral standards are. We have a really good and strong understanding of that if we're reading the scriptures and understanding that God is holy and what that what he requires is a full and complete devotion to him. But when we start to think that somehow we can reach a moral plane or a moral standard where God is going to reward us with blessing, I think we're fundamentally misunderstanding our relationship with God. And interestingly, we see a warning about this in Deuteronomy 9, where God talks to Israel about the danger of a certain trajectory of thought after they enter the promised land. And so he's, he says this, uh, it's in Deuteronomy 9, 4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, speaking of the um, the inhabitants of the land, do not say, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so what we see here is that it's not about Israel. Israel is not the point. In this passage, Israel is going to prosper because these other nations have been so deviant. They've been wicked, and now God is ready to dispossess them from the land. And so Israel will possess the land because of the Lord's promise. They will possess the land when they when they do, like when they possess the land. Uh, they will do so because of the wickedness of the nations that previously inhabited that land. And so God is not just working with um, Israel. He's also working with the rest of the nations. And by analogy, God is not just working with America. He's working with the rest of the nations. And so based on this passage and based on you know other passages in the Old Testament, what I would say is that America has been blessed not simply because or not even remotely because America has been more righteous than other nations. It's because other nations have been so deviant, have been so wicked that America has risen up at this time. That is not to say that if America just sustains a level of righteousness, that God will continue to bless it. I think the dynamics of what God does in history are largely opaque to us. And so we've got to recognize that we need to follow the same warning that Israel did and not say that it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. or in our context, it is, it is not because of our righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to have a blessing in this land. 
Well, it's it's kind of like what I always think. Uh, you know, I think we should do a show sometime on on what God hates. It's always it's always something or something that we do, uh, and you know, it's the things that we do and the things that we make things. He never really hates his creation, and in this case, he never hates people. Correct. And, and I think that that's the real crux of this. And, and what we're trying to wrestle with as we think about what God has done for America and that God has truly blessed America. What I want people to understand and what I want particularly Christians to understand is that God has blessed America for reasons that we may not understand. We can recognize God's blessing and we should recognize all of life as God's gift. We should we should cultivate a, uh, an an understanding of God's presence in our lives. At the same time, we should not assume, and and I think you just have to read the book of Job to understand this, right? You should not assume that it's a one-to-one, a cause and effect sort of relationship, right? Job is suffering not because Job did something horribly, horribly wrong, as his friends assert. Job is suffering because something else is going on. There's a bigger picture that we're allowed into in a narrative perspective that, you know, the the adversary or Satan has come to God and wants to test Job. And so God allows it. That has very little to do with Job's righteousness or lack thereof. And, and I think that as we assert that, hey, we're blessed because I just think we're taking a step a little bit too far. Where we should really be stopping is in gratitude and in a responsibility to obey Christ and understanding that those two things may or may not yield the sort of blessed life that is comfortable and uh, and and sort of allows us to prosper in the way that we would want to as a nation. Yeah, there are you know, there are a lot of people that I admire who obviously love America the sad truth is that as humans, we all have blind spots in Israel and even at the cusp of the promised land, Moses had blind spots. In American history, there are so many arguments at school board meetings right now uh, where physical fights are breaking out over what's to be taught and what should not be taught. Are these warning signs to something? You know, I think God's warning to Israel um, that was in Deuteronomy 9.4 really highlights the relational dimensions that exist between the various nations of the world. And at times, nations prosper because, to echo something like Genesis 15.16, the iniquity of other nations has been completed. Israel has been given the opportunity to choose a life by loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. That's Deuteronomy 30.20. Yet God is not considering Israel alone, but the nations as well. And even if another nation, such as the United States, were to adopt a moral framework based on, for instance, some abstract principles from the Old Testament law, that abstraction is going to fall short because those abstractions tend to push God to the margins, if not deny him altogether. So in other words, if you if you consider it like this, um, We often talk about posting the Ten Commandments in the public square, and that's a really important, uh, that has traditionally been an important part of American life. And yet we know that the first three of those commandments really are not honored in America as a whole. 
America as a whole does not recognize the Lord as the only God. It does not worship him only. It does not uh, stop from taking his name in vain. Like those three commandments are, are just sort of there, but largely ignored. And what we focus on are the more humanitarian commands. Let's not kill each other. Let's not steal from each other. Let's not covet what our neighbor has. Even Sabbath is sort of out the window at this point. And I'm not sure that following those more humanitarian commands, in fact, I'm sure that that I'm sure that even following those Sabbath commands without doing the first three, without having a sort of deep covenantal loyalty to the Lord our God, those Ten Commandments are are virtually powerless. And, and that's because God is empowering Israel to live in this manner. He has a unique relationship with them that he doesn't have with America. And so we've just got to think through, you know, I'm, I obviously love America too. I love living here. I'm grateful for all that God has given to Americans over the years. I, I, am, I am very happy to be living in this time. But what I'm asking Christians to do is to not overread that blessing right? To put it in its proper context and to remember that, look, we're Christians. We're building the kingdom. We're not building a nation. And and that's the key message that I really want to convey to people. Well, you've heard it said that we cannot legislate morality. In recent years, the argument has been made that we have been legislating immorality. Does this speak to relativism as opposed to absolute truth and fundamentalists uh, fu- and fundamentalism? And as Alistair Begg likes to say, if you have a problem with God's word, you need to correct yourself. If you're having a problem with the way I delivered the word, then I am the issue. Either way, speaking about morals and living immorally is lip service and hypocrisy, to which I may be the biggest offender sometimes. So legislating morality or immorality, is is it not as effective as it it sounds? Well, I think that the difficulty here is, um, you know, we often speak about you know legislation and legislation becomes a major issue particularly in specific instances so if we think about abortion for instance we've had a legislative problem with abortion because the, we we viewed it as the united states has um allowed for this immorality to occur and i tend to agree with that i i think that you know the legislation the judicial ruling actually related to uh, abortion has been the um a ruling for immorality uh at the same time what I, what i want people to understand is it's not a question of uh can we so reform the system that it becomes christian right getting the right laws in place uh getting the right policies in place legislating that morality into place does not make the world more Christian. It makes it perhaps less broken or broken in different ways. And so I think part of the function of government and in a democratic society, part of our function as people in that democratic society is to help the government restrain evil. And that restraint of evil is always going to be imperfect. Government is never going to be able to restrain evil to such an extent that we we enter into a utopian age. 
That's why God is ultimately going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And so if we think about it, like no moral framework is going to guarantee God's a blessing. Even if we apply a pattern offered in the Bible as our example. So if you take Babylon, for instance, they didn't defeat Israel because Babylonia was some pinnacle of morality. They defeated Israel because Israel was disobedient. Babylonia would also be displaced by the Persians because of Babylon's wickedness. Cyrus, who's called God's anointed in Isaiah 45.1, and the Persian empire that he led, is prospered despite not knowing the Lord prior to their victory. So that's Isaiah 45.3. There's this whole section in Isaiah 45 where the Persian empire is sort of anointed and called and um, God promises to prosper them, even though they don't know him. And so what, what we're seeing here is there's an ambiguity in the way that God chooses to use different nations. And what I, what I think that we need to remember as Christians is that we are always are Christian first, that the kingdom of God is our priority, and that engaging in, in acts within a democratic society to help the government restrain evil is absolutely appropriate. But it can't be our first move. It can't become our identity. We can't become so obsessed, in other words, with making sure that the government restrains evil that we forget to build the kingdom. And that's just a matter of extent in my mind. Um, They're not inseparable activities. It's not as if you can only do one. We have to do both. There just has to be a priority on building the kingdom as opposed to restraining something for a time that probably won't be restrained completely. And I think we see this in the biblical record and the way nations interact. Babylon is doing something to Israel because Israel has done something bad. But then Babylon can't really sustain that momentum. God is going to bring the Persians in because he's done punishing Israel. Israel has suffered for their disobedience, and now he needs to return them to the land out of exile and make sure that he fulfills his promises to them. And we largely as the church have those promises. And so we're living within nations as, as, as Peter talks about as sojourners and aliens. And that's how we really need to view ourselves in this context. The kingdom truths go out with divine power without hindrance. And to me, if we're looking at the way we should reform our nation, what is the best possible strategy we could use to go about changing and transforming the nation in which we live, loving both God and neighbor at the same time? It is to represent the gospel well in the world so that everything we do isn't geared toward just restraining evil, but it's always geared to pointing others toward Jesus Christ. Well, this has been a special Independence Day podcast edition of Useful to God. For more information and for resources, go to usefulthegod.org. I'm Richard Beatty, and for Dr. James Spencer, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.